You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. And for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your rules-based investing journey. And if you are new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed. Let me just start by saying good morning. Good afternoon, actually, I think it is now. Yes. By now. <laughs> good afternoon. Yes, early afternoon. Hi, Niels. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Got a few things that I wanted to just run with before we go into our review of the week. Firstly, I want to, and I know I say this on a regular basis, that I want to thank the people who leave a rating and review. And I want to because... Really, we don't take it for granted that you guys take time out to listen to us and certainly not to take time out to leave a rating and review. And this week, there were a few that certainly I'll recognize, you know, from there were Rip Mick from Sweden. We had Addy Fizzle from the United Kingdom. Uh, we have Burek from Turkey. Um, but the one I want to read to you today, um, which we don't often do, but it's a longer one and it's from someone calling himself Relative Trend from the US, um, and he left that on iTunes. And I just want to read it to you because I think it's quite telling for uh, what we're trying to do and, and how that might impact people. So anyway, Relative Trend left this uh, uh, rating and review on, on iTunes, headed, no better time than now to apply trend following. I've been listening for two years and still look forward to each week. I've been able to actually apply much of what I've learned from Nils and Co. in the position I hold and in my personal portfolio as well. I can't stress enough how much TTU helped me develop a foundation and framework for investing slash trading basically from scratch. I was just a carpenter and eventually got a job at a fund. Trend following systematic investing takes the guessing out of things, which ultimately is a huge weight off the shoulders and literally allows you more free time in your life because you got you don't because you're not glued to the news or the charts. Ironic as it may sound to some, it is incredibly liberating to not to have to worry uh, about when to buy and when to sell and just simply follow some rules. From talking to many people, I realize not all folks can let go and submit to a system. And that's where listening to this podcast comes in to bolster your confidence and or let someone else manage your funds and take the burden off. What better time than now to allocate to trend following when uncertainty is rife. So I just want to acknowledge that I, we appreciate that. And Moritz and I read all of these reviews every week. So thank you again. And of course, for those of you who uh, may still not have done a review or rating, um, feel free to go to uh, iTunes uh, and do so because they really do help uh, the show. Now, Moritz, there's a few other things just from a market rep point of view that caught my attention. Something that I'm sure you also noticed during the week. The first thing was this thing about China that started one of the biggest real-world trials of central bank digital currencies and where it's, you know, obviously coming closer to a society that is cashless. And from what I saw in the news, you know, last week, the government in Shenzhen carried out a lottery to give away a total of 10 million yuan, which is about $1.5 million worth of digital currency and nearly 2 million people applied for this, 50,000 of which actually won. Of course, to me, it's kind of funny to hear that they talk about this as winning the lottery if you get uh, an allocation of this, because if you value your freedom, I think a central bank Chinese digital currency is probably not necessarily the same as winning the lottery. Anyway, I noticed that. And then I also noticed that actually Christine Lagarde, who uh, Lagarde, who is the ECB president, came out on a virtual conference that was hosted by the IMF saying that the ECB was very seriously looking at the creation of a digital euro. And I, I think we can both agree that 
the Fed, BOE, BOJ is probably not far behind. Then the other thing, just as a kind of a little bit of an experiment when I write to my clients every week, of course, the election dominates at the moment or the pending election dominates at the moment. And and I think, Moritz, you're going to talk to that in, in your market wrap today. But I did do a little bit of going back in, in our 46-year history of, of performance just to see what's the performance like the following calendar year after a U.S. election. And, you know, frankly, of course, we've had, uh, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine or so events in our track record like that. And they vary, of course. But I have to say, overall, if you just take a simple average, it's pretty good, kind of mid-teens in terms of overall performance during those years. So, of course, we don't know what's going to happen in 2021. But I do think maybe that these shifts in policies um, from time to time, either because a president gets confirmed, it gets another four years, or we have a, a change in the White House, potentially it does lead to some market moves that we can capture. And then the final thing I just want to mention, Moritz, is that, um, and you may have had time to 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 see this as well, but Howard Marks came out with one of his famous memos this week. I forgot the title of it. And he writes, it's quite long, it's 16 pages. He, he writes on, on quite a few topics, but, but one of them is this thing about, you know, how he compares the current levels of tech companies, uh, i.e. the NASDAQ, to what happened back in the late 60s with the Nifty 50 and where, quote-unquote, you could say that that were sort of the the tech companies of that time and just how people essentially were of the opinion or ended up having the opinion that these were such good companies that there was no price too high. And he compares that really to the situation of what we're seeing now vis-a-vis the FANG stocks, where he basically says that certainly no one's valuing FANG on current income or intrinsic value, and perhaps not on an estimate of earnings per share in any near future, but rather on potential for growth and increased profitability in the far-off future. So anyways, he's kind of sounding the alarm, I think, in his very subtle and and unique way. So anyway, I thought it was interesting. I don't know if you read it, Moritz, but not to be missed, I think, when when he when he comes out. And by the way, I think he did a, 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 an interview on Bloomberg also this week that I, I want to watch. Um, he's always interesting. He's always interesting. I have his memo printed out. It's on my coffee table, but I haven't read it yet. So it's one of the weekend things to do on the to-do list. I'm looking forward to it. I always find it uh, very enjoyable because Howard Marks has a very, very good style in writing and conveying information. He does it in a very nice way, I find. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, looking back on the week, I mean, we spoke to Perry Kaufman last week, uh, which, which I thought was really interesting. And I think I may have mentioned it that my observation really is that things have stopped moving. And I can only reiterate that point they have stopped moving. I mean, when I look at my portfolio, it's kind of like, you know, currencies, they're sitting there. Your US dollar is at 118 back and forth, you know, 117, 119. But, you know, this is kind of like the range since a couple of weeks. Gold sits there, went up to 2100, down to a bit less than 1900. Now it's around that level, doesn't move that much anymore. Equities up and down, but, you know, the, the, the strong trend that we saw with the V, has subsided it's no longer there and the same is true really for the bonds they move a little bit up and down but there's no real trend so i guess for a trend following portfolio it's kind of like as bad as it gets even though our kind listener relative trend from the uk has says had says uh, has said this is the best time to you know apply trend following he may be right you know once the once the trends appear again that we'll be there and we're looking forward to that but right now we're in this um little bit of a winter or trend following, at least when I look at my portfolio, that seems to be the case. Because I have real problems getting out of that drawdown. You know, I, I traded myself into that 7% drawdown and I'm kind of stably sitting there. You know, since month, it feels like that, you know, my weekly performance is, for the most part, it's down a bit, a few days basis points down. This week, it has been a few basis points up, but it's never meaningful. 
it's been a long, long time since I've had a like, you know, plus 2% week or something like that, which normally with the volatility that I trade tends to happen much more frequently. So it's kind of like, you know, it's quieting down. Is that because you're light on positions or just, as you said, markets not moving? Markets not moving, I think. And, and a lot of stuff just, you know, compensating. You know, I make a little bit of money in the bonds. I lose a little bit of money in the equities. I make a little bit of money in the currencies. I lose a little bit of money in the energies. Yada, yada, yada. But there's no, like there's, there's rarely a big mover, like a real big standout sunshine performer that, you know, would, would jump at me when I look at the screen and go like, oh yeah, here's crude oil. Like, you know, in, in, in March, April, May, where it's like, thank you for having made me 4% this week. I don't see this anymore. So, so this week I, I'm up 40 basis points for a change. I'm still down about a bit less than 7% for the year now. And for once I've made a little bit of money on the grains, which is a rare occurrence, uh, at least from memory. So being long corn, being long soybeans, long wheat, these things have helped because, you know, the grains and, and a lot of the acts actually have trended to the upside and, um, I'm now long. So that's good. But other than that, like I say, I am really missing a meaningful number of trends or meaningful trends in a meaningful number of markets, put it that way. I just don't have that. And so it is, it is a waiting game, still in that patience mode where, you know, you have to keep doing what you're doing. Don't give up, do the trades. And just, you know, trust that better times will come. And better times will come, I have no doubt. And this is certainly not the first time we, we see this pattern. I know I share your frustration. If you want more action, more, it's maybe you do need to get that Tesla stock into your portfolio. But anyways... Man, I'm massively long calls, you know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyways, no, it's, it's frustrating, but it's just part of it. And, uh, and... Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you talk about being down 7%, which to me is just nothing really uh, compared to where these strategies normally tend to deliver when they do deliver. So you you have to expect that. And, and, and you know, frankly, equities this year were down a hell of a lot more. And actually equities in many European countries are down, you know, more than 10% even at this point after the massive recovery. So... Yeah, I mean, on our side, maybe we had a little bit of a, a better week, maybe a percent or so better, driven by some of the same things that you uh, mentioned. Firmer prices on global fixed income markets were pretty good and, and, and constructive for us. Commodities like live cattle, and in particular wheat. I mean, the dry weather we see across the globe has certainly reduced the, uh, the yield prospects in some of the key growing regions like Argentina. And also, I think there's some dry forecast in in the Black Sea in the U.S., where we have also a lot of wheat production. So that's definitely helping. And you and I actually talked about it not that far, you know, not that long ago, that some of these commodities looked interesting just from a pure charting point of view. So maybe it is time to get a little bit of benefit from that part of the portfolio. For us, the most challenging sector was really currencies. As you say, nothing really happens. And also equities were... Well, pretty flat. Since we also trade the volatility as a separate component, that actually had a, 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 a pretty quiet week. But the election impact, uh, when you look at that space, certainly remains quite visible as options expiring around and slightly after the election date are substantially more costly and options actually have become more expensive, mostly due to, quote-unquote, the uncertainty um, remaining uh, somewhat elevated. VIX futures uh, pretty much across the whole structure sold off and therefore narrowing the spread down to the VIX index. And also I think we saw a little bit of a flattening of the curve this week, but pretty uneventful from a performance yeah. point of view. I mean, the volatility is interesting. I've picked up a couple of uh, opinions that maybe the volatility is even overpriced, i.e. trading too expensive given the election uncertainty. I mean, a lot of people have purchased protection two, three, four weeks ago to be prepared for an uncertain election outcome you know, or a delayed election outcome. We don't know what's going to happen. But ever since 
the volatility in Bud Falls have come down a bit. And I think VIX is trading where 26, 25, 27, somewhere around that range, but it's it's less than 30, right? So this election, one interesting poll number that I, I look at, and you know, you always have to take these polls with a large, large grain of salt, as we know from 2016. But the economist comes out every, I think they update it every day with an election forecast for the U.S. election, and they see a 91% probability of a Biden win. It used to be 93 at the peak, but 91%. So when you look at these numbers, it sounds like a done deal, but I don't think it's a done deal. I mean, it's just, um, I wouldn't, I don't think it's 91 to 9 or 93 to 7. There's, you know, three weeks to go, two and a half weeks to go, something like that. And who knows? Donald Trump is, um, he knows how to play these things, right? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think Hillary thought it was a done deal. Hillary th- probably thought it was a done deal. And and the markets, they, they're like like a cat looking at a mouse. They're like in this in this position where they're like watching the market. Okay, where is it going? Who's going to win? And I don't think much is going to move until the election outcome is there. But then something will move, right? Uh, either it's going to be a Biden move or it's going to be a Trump move. But it will have an impact on markets. Which exactly? I honestly don't know. I just hope that our systems will either be positioned already correctly, which would be so nice, or pick those trends up that will develop uh, post the election outcome. Let's see. I, I think people, you know, they, they may be a bit worried. I can only say that from a European perspective. I don't know anything about the US and I don't want to have any opinion on that, to be honest. But I think, you know, with if, if if Trump wins a second term, like, you know, with a second term, it's kind of like then the gloves come off, right? Because right now you can only have two terms unless Trump does away with that rule and gives himself a third or fourth term like Putin style, right? It's 6-3 in the Supreme Court, right? Uh, exactly. So who knows? But we feel like, you know, what do you mean the gloves come off in the second term? The gloves have already come off in the first term. Right? <laughs> you know, this is going to be, this is going to be uh, like a thriller for everyone in the world. So um, let's see. But here's the thing, Mart. I mean, we're not normally talking about trying to sound like economists and, and, and make any forecasts. That's not exactly. really what we try to do. It doesn't mean we don't have opinions. But, you know, one of the things that I find really interesting, and that is, or the question is, will things change dramatically whoever wins, right? Because if you look at some of the structural problems we have right now, in terms of indebtedness, in terms of the second wave of, of this COVID, it's, it's going to, I mean, it's hurting already. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's some, I mean, for how long will governments be able to just, you know, pay the bill for all of this? Mm-hmm. At some point, it's going to show up in the real economy. So we can certainly talk about that from a US perspective, but also from a European perspective. I heard this morning or maybe during the week, that in, in Italy, for example, at the moment, you have something like 40% government-supported GDP, right? So 40% of the whole GDP, just pure government subsidies, et cetera, et cetera. But that's on top of a country that already is like running at, I don't know, 180% debt to GDP. And and with their yields being at the all-time low. Exactly. Know, and, Spread and, and, to booms being crazy low right crazy low and and you know they may be downgraded on the 23rd of october to to junk maybe even by moody's but i guess you know who 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 gives a damn because well, you know that paper is going to be purchased by the ecb or we're going to have like a you know joint joint debt program or something like that but i i agree with you what, what you say i i don't think it really matters that much who's president or who's the chancellor of germany because the environment isn't going to be changed by that pension deficits, huge deficits on a budget level, indebtedness of governments and countries, um, yada, 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 you name it, right? Insolvencies, people going out of business, demographics, no president can change that, right? right? So presumably you're going to have stimulus or modern monetary theory, whatever you, you know, something like that, no matter who's president. The only thing that can change is the rhetoric around it. And, you know, do you do that in a divisive way or do you do it in a Let's get through this together way. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. There's certainly certain internal things that can be fueled but, or, you know, with one win over the other, that's for sure. And of course, we also have to recognize that there are certain key issues in the U.S. like healthcare that will be 
markedly different depending on the outcome of the election. So I'm not I'm not trying to um, discount those things, but I'm just thinking, and this is my personal opinion, I think we're heading towards a really difficult time either way. Again, from listening to different people during the last few weeks and, and months in terms of people I really respect, including the ones we had on our mini-series on Global Macro, but also a few other people that, are, that I pick up on, on other podcasts during the week, a lot of them are talking about some really serious and kind of frightening prospects for the world economy. And if they come through, then I think our really nice listener who left this wonderful review will be absolutely right. No better time than now to apply trend following. And this is what's frustrating because I sense the frustration, not just between what we talk about every week, but I sense the frustration from investors who feel uh, just observers, let's call them that, who says, oh yeah, but trend following hasn't done a lot for you lately. But that's the whole point. I mean, sometimes you you do have periods where not enough happens, but it's it's like, you know, the house, you know, with an insurance. I mean, you really don't want it to be used. And for the most part, it is never used. But when you really need it, it needs to be there. And then the flip side of that argument is, of course, I feel a lot of people are now starting, and this is not a, I'm not trying to discredit the short-term guys because we're all colleagues and we all do things differently. But I think investors miss the point, or maybe they're absolutely right that all crisis going forward is going to be like a three-week event and then short-term will be for sure the place to be. But I think sometimes people discount the value of the fact that trend following tend to do much better when the crisis become really severe and long-term and drawn out. Yet, of course, the short-term guys, we know if it's just a two- or three-week crisis, they will do better most likely than trend following. But it's to me, sounds like nowadays people think, oh, crisis can only... There all crises in the future are going to be three weeks, so we don't need the long-term, we just need short-term, and, and that's where all the, the money is flowing. And again, I just think that you're doing this at the absolutely wrong time in the cycle. I agree. Of course, you know, if every time we have a problem, there's a central bank that goes, stimulus, here you go, three weeks after the event, and, you know, does a U-turn on, on the markets, then, of course, you know, all of these corrections or all of these crises could just turn out to be corrections, i.e. short-lived in duration, and then they revert. But I'm not sure if they're going to be doing stimulus all the time. You can't just heal the economy and all the problems that we have with, you know, pressing the money button over and over and over again. I, I don't I don't see a positive end to that. I may be completely wrong there. Maybe maybe we can't just print money and just do it. But we'll find in five years time when we're still doing this more it's <laughs> Exactly. But there is a point to be cautious, I think. You you can maybe we're wrong. Maybe all of this works. Maybe this is this magic money tree type of thing. And, you know, we can just print the money and, and, and everything's fine. And forget about all the zeros and zeros and zeros that the deficit number shows. Print that platinum coin, put it at the bottom of the fat for everybody to see and, you know, tell everybody it's worth 10 trillion and, okay, we believe it. Maybe it does work. But if it does not work, then you don't want to be all in long only buy and hold, buy and hope on stocks. You know, because or they, bonds, or, or exactly or bonds, right? Which may be losing their protective capacity in in light of such a correction, because yields are already let's call it at zero, right? So yeah. where are they going to go? So therefore, I think a diversified portfolio that can go long and short and that has a more cautious stance, which and you could say trend following in a way does have that you know caution built in. Because we wouldn't be just trading one market all in long only, right? I mean, there's a bunch of things going on. It's dynamic. It changes. You know, last week we've made money from corn and wheat and soybeans. Well, great, right? We, don't, we didn't really care that much about the bonds. That may be completely different in two weeks' time. So it does have that response function, that responsive element to, you know, what's happening in the markets, which oftentimes, you know, creates a whipsaw. Because a central bank says, oh, here's the stimulus, right? And then we're caught on the wrong foot. But if if the trends become a bit longer, right, and the, the problem, problems become more visible, let's say, uh, then we should be able to make money. Absolutely. 
Okay, let's move on to our next segment, our usual segment. Actually, today we've got some uh, really good questions lined up. But the first one is from Michael. It's not a question, but it's a very kind comment that Michael sent in vis-a-vis an earlier question we had a few weeks ago where someone was talking about silver and how it was difficult for him with his account size to trade it. But Michael very kindly wrote in and said, have a look maybe at the micro silver futures because that has plenty of liquidity. And he says that it traded 9,711 lots so far today. This is a few days ago. I got the email in the December contract. But he does also say that, yes, the mini doesn't have any liquidity or any volume, but actually the micro does. So, And I forget who wrote that question. Uh, maybe I should have looked that up before. But anyways, uh, hopefully you're listening today and that might be the answer. So thanks, Michael, for for taking time and, and uh, letting us know so that we can share this information. Now, the next question is from Adam. And Adam writes... I've been a long-time listener and a big fan of the show. I currently run a small proprietary systematic cryptocurrency fund trading mostly trend-following strategies. I have a question regarding the nature of these strategies and how they usually give back PNL at the top of the markets if long and at the bottom of the market if short. While it's clear to me that the longer time frames used for the parameters, the greater the degree of this give back. However, in turn the less choppy the strategy usually is. Are there any techniques any of you might have used in the past or currently to minimize the quote-unquote give back at the tops and bottoms of markets to preserve more of the PL in the trade? I've thought of testing trailing stops and ATR stops, but it seems these can take you out of the trade too early on those larger trending markets. I'd be keen to hear your thoughts. And of course, Adam, this is one of the really difficult questions that we all struggle with. I'm going to let Moritz go with this first and and share some thoughts afterwards. Interesting. By the way, before I answer the question, I got a LinkedIn message earlier this week from a listener to our show who lives in Switzerland who had a similar question is like he's in the crypto space and he's getting interested in trend following on cryptos and how a trend following program on crypto should be designed and what I would think about it. And so I had a, I had a phone call with him uh, while I was in the car and we just, you know, it was a very, very nice chat. Of course, my, one of, one of the key messages I conveyed was don't just do it on Bitcoin or one crypto, you know, that stuff works, hopefully works. If you do it on a diversified portfolio, many markets, you know, long and short. So anyway, but back to the question, the give back. Oh, yeah, the give back. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, what can I say? It's uh, it's part of the game. Every time, you know, that stop is hit and you've mentioned trailing stop. I, I think that's a good good starting point and a good idea to look at trailing stops. I use trailing stops, for instance. But, you know, when it happens, you're never trend following, you know, as a rule, you're not going to be selling the top if you're long. You know, you, you don't sell the highest tick to get out of, out of a position. So you have to understand that, right? Trend following doesn't work that way. So there will always be give back on a position before it hits your stop. The question is how much? Now, with the benefit of hindsight, when I look at the charts, sometimes, you know, I go like, ah, damn it, I should have exited that position, you know, 10 points higher or 20 points higher. You know, it would have been so obvious from, you know, the chart pattern, blah, blah, blah. And I think I just make that stuff up to the voices in my head that tell me that, but none of that stuff is true. So I, you know, you can test different exits and I encourage people to do that where, for instance, you could look at how many ATRs did your market already make? How much profit do you have? How long have you been in the trade already? Is this a position that you've had on for like three days? Or is that position something that you have on for nine months? And maybe you have an exit rule that, you know, therefore narrows the gap between the current price of the market and your stop, meaning your trailing stop moves closer to the market and reduces the give back potential. Now you can do all that can do that in trading blocks in Excel with your Python code, whatever way you want to do it. But as you know, I think Jerry and I have said repeatedly, when you do these type of exits, 
make sure that they have enough sample size so that you can actually draw a conclusion from them and evaluate their effectiveness fairly. Because if you say you have a trailing stop that's, you know, whatever, right? There's four or five ATRs, whatever you're using, or six, seven ATRs. And then you have a, a single rule that says, well, if this single event happens, or if I have been in the trade for that amount of time, then, you know, I'm reducing my trailing stop from, say, you know, six to three ATRs, right? Uh, okay, fine. Now you're you're closer to the market. You've reduced the potential for give back. But be fair to yourself and count how many times did that exit actually trigger across all markets in your portfolio over the past 10, 20 or whatever years you're looking back on. And you want to have a meaningful sample size, not just 10 events or 20 events or 30 events, right? But hundreds of events, right? Maybe thousands of events to figure out for yourself whether that's the way to go. And of course, in cryptos, now to, to go full, full circle on that, Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a market that I have in the portfolio. It's the most volatile market by far. Maybe once a year for a week, natural gas goes up there in terms of volatility, right? But I mean, this is very episodic, but Bitcoin is kind of like close to 100% vol all the time. Not the past two to three months, it has uh, quieted down a bit around the 11,000 level, but it usually is a very volatile market, right? Which means that when you use volatility or an ATR-based exit and stops, of course, when you go long, say, Bitcoin at 10,000, you know, you may see your stop at, I don't know, 4,000, 5,000, right? Massive give back potential. So you have to size these things appropriately, meaning small in the case of Bitcoin. And it shouldn't be just a Bitcoin trend following system, because if you do trend following just on Bitcoin, I mean, imagine the volatility, right? There's nothing else to diversify it. It's just zip, zip, zip. <laughs> it's, uh, I wouldn't be able to, uh, to hang on to that thing. So you have to put more, more markets into your portfolio and size Bitcoin appropriately and accept the fact that you may have massive gains, right? If the thing goes your way, you know, you may double your money. I mean, Bitcoin has gone from 3,000 to 6,000 in no time. And sometimes, you know, the thing doubles in, you know, a couple of weeks, right? So it could be at 20,000 before the end of the year. It's, it's, it's not impossible. Bitcoin does these type of things. Who knows, right? But on the flip side, you have to be prepared to have massive give back, give back because your stop needs to be far away from where you enter the position. Yeah, wise words there for you, Adam. I would add a few things. One is from memory. I think Jerry has ruled something along the line where if the market moves a certain distance away from its most recent high, you know, that, that could trigger some kind of exit. I think that could be valid. I also encourage you, which I'll do later again, but for another reason, uh, to go back and re-listen to the episode with Perry Kaufman uh, we had last week because actually it's one of the things we talked about. And Perry very kindly shared that he uses kind of a different approach to to some something I've never come across, which is if the markets become too volatile, often what happens when a market kind of finishes its trend, it goes parabolic, either up or down. And so he had some kind of rule where, and you can listen to that, I think he shares it on the episode, where he basically, once the market goes to a certain level of volatility, he just says, yeah, I mean, it's in, it's impossible for it to continue at this level, so I'm just out. That's another way of looking at it. Now, before joining Don, um, I was more in the, the weeds of the code, and we were running some Sim, you know, similar to what Morris described. So there are different ways of using, say, trailing stops. So one stop could be just a classical trailing stop, and you can find different ways of doing that, ATR base or whatever it might be. But what we also did was we basically had a stop rule that became more sensitive the longer the trend, meaning it was time-based, but not as a profit target, but it just became tighter and tighter and tighter along with the length of the trade. So that's another thing you could look at. And then what we would do is we would automatically, the system would automatically pick the stop that is closest to the prior close of the market. So you'd always, you might have three or four different stop calculations every day, but you always pick the one that is closest to uh, to the, where the price is trading, again, to avoid some of that give back. None of this is perfect, but as Moritz rightly said, you need to test, you need to make sure you have enough 
data points to make a reasonable um, conclusion? Um, it's a great question. And by the way, I think it's one of the most important things we do in terms of improving our overall output. And that has to do with where we exit. Because I still, I know we all have to get into the trade. And I think we, we all know how to do that because getting into a trend is relatively easy. You can even see it on a chart. Figuring out when to get out and therefore how much of the trend you can capture, in my opinion, is more difficult. So yeah, spend some time on this, Adam. Keep going. I think a lot of other listeners out there are dealing with the same issue. So hopefully this is, uh, this is useful. So I'm going to jump to another email we got question. Also a little bit of a long one. So bear with me here. This is from Brendan. Brendan writes, I've been listening intently for almost two years now and still look forward each week. I've learned so much thus far and have recently been offered the opportunity to apply that knowledge of trend following and my proprietary model at a discretionary trading fund I work for. I started from the bottom here three years ago at this fund as an office project manager and after enough hard work and chiming in the conversation, they recognized my potential and eventually became an analyst and executing trader. I've been slowly harping uh, on the benefits of trend following as a direct as to the director and others, letting it gradually sink in to their unconsciousness. Finally, due to their discretionary exhaustion, they now are on board with launching a new systematic share class with the model I built. My questions are in the compliance realm and don't expect a full. Uh, answer, but I would love to hear your opinions and start a conversation. But essentially giving my backtest model to the fund, I would be divesting ownership of it. And if so, what incentives should I be given? And two, if I decline handing over my model backtest and, uh, and left to launch it with another fund or private investor, could I be sued? I ask because approximately half of the research done to develop uh, it was done on company time and the other one was done moonlighting. Okay, so, Morris, I, I think this is not something that is that unusual, um, meaning that people, you know, work on something, they pitch it to their employer and and um, they either get a yes or a no. In this case, Brendan get a yes and he's looking for some advice as to, okay, am I just going to hand over the code and that's it, no guarantees? Uh, or what kind of guarantees could I be given? And also, if I don't want to do this, where do I stand? And of course, as you rightly said, Brendan, we're not lawyers, any of us, so we can't give you legal advice. So this is just Martin Nils thinking outside the box here for a little bit on a topic we, we obviously have come across, but we're not experts in. So as usual, Moritz, what hmm. are your thoughts? Hmm. What a difficult question. Well, to start, the intellectual property rights and, and the way that works is, I think, different in every country. I think they're very severe, very harsh in the US and also in the UK, where, you know, if you leave one firm and you go to another and there's even a little bit of a trace or the uh, the possibility that you have taken code or, or anything like that, or just intellectual property or knowledge, then you, you do get sued, right? I mean, of course, the same kind of rule applies, for instance, in Germany, you're not allowed, it's, it's IP theft, right? I mean, that's, that's a crime, you, you can't do that. But I guess there, there, there are still differences. I mean, let me, I, and, and I'm not a lawyer, so I, I can't really give you a, a good answer to that. But if, if I were in your shoes, and if you have a good trading model that you don't want to trade with your own account, but you want to trade it inside a corporate with more money in an institutional setting, but it is your IP, then if I were you, I'd approach your superiors and say, look, this is some stuff that I have developed on my own dime, on my own time, moonlighting, etc. And I think it does have value. It's valuable because it's producing an alpha uh, and it has been doing this, that, and the other thing over the past years, ideally with a live track record, right? And if your employer or the corporate likes it, then you should 
find a way to get to an agreement whereby a certain percentage of the profits or whatever it is, right? You get some incentive, some revenue share, some P&L share, some upside, a financial upside and compensation that is tied to the performance of the model. And I think that's fair. I guess what will happen is as soon as you implement code and your model on the computers or the server infrastructure of the firm, that corporate, then it's kind of like their thing, right? If they make you redundant, for instance, or you, you decide to leave, then this code is there. There may be legal wording that you know says, okay, the corporate is no longer permitted to use the code uh, because it is code that you have produced. But really, this is this is very difficult because probably there have been modifications done over time to the code, etc. And how can you actually control that nobody's still working with the code or using it, right? So, I guess the way I would look at that is say, once you've made that move and you've transferred code into the firm. Uh, I guess you can just treat it as it is now theirs, right? You've you've moved the IP over to the firm. It is theirs. They can do whatever they want with it, really. Make sure that you get a good compensation, a fair agreement, a fair treatment, because you've provided the work and you give it to them. And that, you know, uh, if you leave the firm and or if they just, you know, throw you out, then, you know, there, there needs to be a comp- compensation payment, something like that. I think you need to find a gentleman's agreement. That That's my gut feeling with these type of things. There's no clear rule or, or like legal guidance that, you know, I could, I could really relate to and say, this is how it should be done. And everybody is holding by these rules. It needs to be honest, fair, have a gentleman's agreement, and then you can do it. If, if you, if, if I were you, if I didn't have the feeling that, you know, uh, you're, you're being treated fairly, that they're just looking to exploit the code and, you know, say, thank you. Uh, we're not going to give you any of the upside. Uh, you've done great work. Now it's ours. Then that's not the right place to work. Yeah. So, I mean, as, as Mark said, it's a difficult question to answer and there's no template for doing this. Along the lines of what, what Mark said, I would maybe propose the following, not as any type of advice or anything like that, just thinking out, outside the box. If if you want to move ahead with this firm, right, That because you think now you're being given a chance and you want to honor that, you want to treat your boss nicely because he's given you this opportunity, maybe one way of protecting yourself a little bit would be to have a agreement in writing that says, okay, if as long as you're there, then you agree some kind of revenue split or whatever it might be or incentive or bonus structure for for you having brought this to 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 the company. But the company, of course, should also make money from 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 this of course but if you leave and it's your decision to leave then both parties will be allowed to continue using that code but if they get rid of you then only you are allowed to use that code going forward so that gives you a little bit of protection in that scenario but i do think as as mart says be transparent be upfront make sure you get it in writing it's too much hassle if later on you realize that you didn't have a clear agreement in place. And if you have developed some of this during your work time, then maybe the, what I've just said and what Morris said is, is fair, that both both entities have some can make use of it, but maybe with the protection that if they're just getting rid of you because, oh, now we have the code, then they can't use it. But if you leave, yeah, I think it's fair. They also are able to continue to use it. Whether they do or not, that's a different question. But we appreciate that question for sure the next one is from dr doom so not sure who that is but dr doom he writes to us and this is and maybe it's a reference to your colleague moritz or maybe it's a mistypo i don't know but it starts by saying hello moritz and moritz so it could be uh the double moritz that we know uh, from from your other work First of all, thanks for the awesome podcast. It's great pleasure and luck to be able to listening and reach out to such professionals. Glad I found your work. I have two questions. One is kind of a personal advice, and I hope others fall into the context of the podcast. First question, I'm a master's student in actuary science. Not just the statistics, but I also find the markets very fascinating and, not going to lie, more exciting. Do you guys know of actuaries that turned into quants slash asset managers, question mark, since you, Moritz, work at, we know that, Munich Re, I thought maybe you 
do have some actuaries that work with you. How does an actuary transition to a quant? That must be for you, Moritz. <laughs> must be for me, Dr. Doom. That's Nuriel Rubini. Interesting question from Nuriel. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> I'm <laughs> not sure who it is, but you know, Nuri Lubini has that nickname of Dr. Doom. So, of course, there are uh, actuaries working inside the Mini group, but inside of Mini Investment Partners, which is our quantitative investment management arm, I don't have any actuaries. That is not because I don't want them or don't like them. You know, actuaries are very, very quantitative, actually, by background, by the way they, you know, their education. I just don't don't have any in, in, in the team, to be honest. Is it possible for an actuary to work in quant trading? Well, absolutely. I know of one. Uh, I don't think I have the liberty of mentioning uh, that name, but I know of one person who has completed actuarial studies, who has started his career as an actuary and ended up working as a quantitative trader for Graham Capital Management in rate and in the States. It's absolutely possible. I think as an actuary, you have a lot of the quant skills that are very beneficial when it comes to system design, system development, coding, backtesting, you know, thinking about statistics and probabilities and all these type of things, because you've learned about that stuff in your studies. But I think everybody really can become a quantitative trader. It's it's a matter of, do you want it? You know, is this what gets you going? Is is this, is, is your heart beating for that? If it is, you know, you could be a butcher or a baker and become a quant trader. Why not? It's, you know, if you're burning for it, uh, then you will automatically find yourself in front of the computer on a weekend because it is your your passion and you'll design systems and uh, it'll, it'll become your thing, no matter what you've done before. And I think, you know, a good, uh, a good uh, example of this is the turtles experiment uh, that Jerry uh, was part of. I mean, he was not exactly, he didn't have a quant background when he started. He was an, an accountant. Speaking of which, Michael Covell, who writes about the turtles a lot, he will be on the show next week. So if you have questions, I'm sure you do uh, for Michael, uh, send them to us to info at toptradersonplot.com and we'll be sure to put them forward to Mike when uh, when he joins us next week. Second part of the question from Dr. Doom is, I'm not going to read all of it because it's a long one, but it can be summarized because it's about high frequency trading. but it, And it can be summarized to, you know, what is your opinion about HTFs as asset managers? Do you see them as they are against you or merely as a liquidity provider? Any views on that, Moritz, before we go to the final question of the day? High-frequency traders. I have a, a maybe a mixed view on these. Of course, they hold themselves out as liquidity providers, and I'm sure they do provide liquidity. But they are different, in my opinion, to a market maker or specialist market maker, say, you know, the, in the old days when they were in the NICE, because these people have an obligation to make markets and provide liquidity no matter what. A high-frequency trading firm doesn't have that. A high-frequency trading firm has the option not the obligation, an option to provide liquidity. And they choose to exercise their option during times that is very beneficial for them, obviously, right? And when there's something weird happening in the markets, there's too much volatility, et cetera, et cetera, they withdraw their option and they're no longer there. So they are a sunshine liquidity provider, but on a rainy day, they may not be there. Developments such as the IEX, you know, flash boys, the Michael Lewis book, probably four or five years ago, something like that, right? Coming to the market and, you know, coiling up cables so that, you know, orders are being delayed. I mean, all of that to me is, is, you know, it just shows that, you know, orders, there's payment for order flow, high frequency firm, front run, you know, packs of orders and, you know, arbitrage them. So of course, it's a business model for them. They're not doing that because, you know, Liquidity provision is a charity thing that they're feeling good about. They're making money off of that. Speaking about liquidity, I mean, the, the, my observation is, and this is this is probably your observation too, it's in the data, right? Liquidity has become poorer and poorer and poorer over the years. And it's, it's, it's really going down. And why is that? Maybe passive flows, you know, there's no longer as many active traders, you know, um, having orders in the order book, being willing to take up, hit the bid or lift the offer if, you know, stuff moves because it's all just, you know, passive stuff and ETF and rebalancing trades. 
Maybe it's because of uh, high-frequency trading firms. I really do not know. Um, so they're there. Uh, by the way, Citadel, I picked this up this morning. I don't know whether that's right or wrong, but they sued. They sued the SEC because the SEC allowed a an order type that IEX has requested, like a discretionary limit order or something like that. And, you know, the high-frequency trading firms and, you know, Citadel is in that business too. They They don't like it, probably because they can no longer make as much money if somebody else has that order type. So they suit the SEC because the SEC allows this this order. And I don't know. It is really not my ballpark. I don't want to be, you know, saying too much about that because it is a very complex topic. Uh, you, know, you would have to take a deep dive into, you know, how all these microstructures work in the order books and the exchanges. It's just not, just not my cup of tea. So um, sorry about that. No, it's fine. I kind of share your uh, view on this. One, I don't know enough about it. Two, I have mixed feeling about it. But three, I think as a long-term trend follower, despite completely agreeing that it looks like liquidity, at least on the surface, is is um, is waning uh, to, to some extent, I think long-term trend followers, we're still fine with what we do because whether we, I mean, as we've had, you know, some guests on explaining that actually they trade three days after the the actual signal that they find that's actually a better time than executing the same day as the signal. It just shows you the robustness of the philosophy of trend following, and I think that that is more important. But uh, no, great that you brought it up, Doctor Doom. But we sorry we can't be more specific on that point. But hopefully you got some value from uh, the other question final question today is from thomas thomas writes you and the gang often speak of attractive risk adjusted returns and that even though the last 10 years or so haven't been ideal for systematic traders some trader ctas have actually still pulled out excellent performance you all state that it is better for investors to add this type of investment strategy to their overall portfolio mix but most investors don't qualify to invest in a CTA. For those average retail investors, mutual funds are the only option unless they do it themselves. Most of the mutual funds have less than exciting performance, even the ones run by investment giants that have been cited and respected on your program. With that said, is systematic trading incompatible with the mutual fund format if someone doesn't want to do it themselves? but also doesn't qualify for a CTA, should he just skip it and stick with the traditional investment choices? Now, let me jump in on this first, because we do actually also have a mutual fund, so I have a little bit of exposure to this. I think it's a relevant question, Thomas. My answer to you is, I don't think you should skip it. I will recognize that, yes, our mutual fund is more expensive for investors to invest in. And that has nothing to do with the fees they pay to us as a manager because we charge the same fees. It is for that wrapper or that packaging that the uh, SEC requires for a mutual fund. It is simply more expensive. Might even be as much as 75 basis points more expensive than a European usage fund, which is the equivalent. Nothing we can do about that thus far. However... If you do choose a higher leveraged version of a strategy, then 75 basis points difference is not the end of the world. Now, granted, I completely agree with you, Thomas, if you look at the performance of many of the mutual funds, because they haven't been around for more than five, seven, ten years, whatever, the performance doesn't look stellar. But what you need to look for, I think, is to find mutual funds that tend to track the underlying program or strategy well, except for that difference in cost. And so if you still believe in the strategy, if you still believe in the fact that having a non-correlated return stream within your portfolio makes a lot of sense, you should go with that. And hopefully that will allow you to save up to then be able to pull out from the mutual fund and invest typically in a uh, an LLC structure, if you're US-based uh, or in Europe, it would be an offshore fund where costs are significantly lower. And therefore, obviously, that's pure benefit directly to, to the investors. But you have to, as you rightly put it, you have to be aware of the 
cost uh, in different funds and also whether or not they really do track the underlying program. Now, final point, Thomas, and this is important. When you look at data for mutual funds in the US in the CTA space, performance may look quite different. But that could also be because mutual funds pay out dividends. And this is something I don't know much about, so I'm not going to get into that. But I do see it on our side as well. And I don't know how well as some of these databases, when they publish performance, they are able to compensate for that dividend payout or whether it just looks like, oh, the share price fell 3% and, oh, what is that? So, again, be really careful about how you um, evaluate that and speak with the managers that you're looking at or the fund provider to make sure they answer all of your questions in that regard. But no, I mean, fundamentally, I'm a strong believer in in uh, having uncorrelated return streams. And even though we often mention that trend following hasn't been that hot in the last five years, it's still a great strategy. It's never going to go out of fashion, uh, except for periods um, where maybe central banks are in the uh, driver's seat. But as we talked about earlier today, that may not last forever and may not last for that much longer. And so trends will come back in in, in stronger fashion and we will um, will once again uh, have strong performance. But by the way, my last point before I turn it over to Moritz, I also think people have very short-term memories. I mean, many managers last year with, say, a 20-25% volatility were up about 20% for the year. So it's not like we have not made money. It's just that this year has been a bit boring. Uh, in fact, and, and I quoted that, uh, I think, a couple of weeks ago with Moritz, last year we had seven positive monthly returns in a row. That's only been superseded back in 2001, I think, or something like that, where we had eight months in a row. So it's not like trends weren't there and we haven't made money as an industry. It's just that it doesn't really feel that way when you look at the last four or five years overall. But you know, let's not forget that it took, I don't know, 12 years for the NASDAQ to get back to break even after it made a peak in 2000. So these things do happen to all investment strategies. Moritz, what's your view? Not much to add, Niels. Uh, I agree with that. I think you know, there, there are quite a few good trend-following programs available in retail funds, uh, 40-act funds, or in Europe, usage funds, uh, or alternative investments funds, uh, which are not as accessible as usage funds. But um, even the ones that are wrapped into, say, a usage wrapper or a 40-act wrapper, they, you know, some of them come at, I think, really, really attractive fees. Uh, you know, they're, they're not at 2 and 20. They're at, most of them, I think, are flat fee only, or they are like zero and the performance fees, something like that, or you know, a small management fee and a small performance fee. I don't think they are unfairly priced at all. And so you do get exposure to trend following through these products. Um, and I would say that that is, I mean, if, if I were doing that, then that's a better choice than long only buy and hold equities. Of course, you can always try to do it yourself. And, you know, if you're enjoying that, if you enjoy, you know, being a trader, being in control of your portfolio, being in control of your own system, your trend following system, not somebody else's trend following system. I think there are many benefits to that. You know, psychologically, it feels good. This is your thing, right? But yeah, you you needed a bit more money, you know, at, at two quants, we're working on that, um, you know, to make that portfolio available for smaller notional portfolio sizes. Uh, but if you're trading futures contracts, as you know, you know, there's there's a certain minimum that you need. You can't do it with 50K or 100K. It's going to be either too volatile or you're just not going to have enough markets to, to get the diversification benefit. Yeah, and that's actually the other thing uh, because most uh, managers, most CTAs and trend followers, you, you would be able to access their low-fee products with $100,000. That's usually the minimum for regulatory uh, purposes. And so, of course, you wouldn't be able to trade your own portfolio at $100,000 and get the same diversification. And at that instance, and I've said that uh, before, I actually think it's better for you to uh, just find a manager that gives you that instant uh, diversification, even if it's not your strategy, and then continue to work on your own strategy if that's your ultimate goal. Now, before I transition to talk a little bit about uh, where we are performance-wise, I do want to 
I do want to mention something uh, as a little bit of an experiment, actually, which is always fun. And Moritz has no idea what I'm about to say now. So that makes it even more interesting, I'm sure. But but last week, we had Perry Kaufman on the show. And he was really fantastic. I think everyone who's listened to that episode, you'll agree that he was uh, incredibly generous in terms of what he shared. And I thought it was really enlightening. And he looks at trend following in slightly different ways, maybe to uh, to Moritz and I. Um, so it was super interesting. So one, if you haven't listened to it, go back uh, and listen to that episode as soon as you finish uh, listening us to, to us uh, today. But I also want to do something um, um, as a little bit of an experiment. Um, and I hope you will, as you listen to this, take a couple of minutes out of your time and just uh, roll with this. And that is, please go to the Top Traders Unplugged YouTube channel, find the latest episode, which, uh, you know, will most likely be episode 109 with Perry Kaufman. If not, uh, just find that. And please like that episode, because I really want to see if we can get hundreds or thousands of you liking an episode like that. I'd really like to see how that impacts the YouTube algorithm. And hopefully it will help us, you know, feature uh, these episodes a, a little bit more prominently, which also allows more people to discover the podcast. So I know on one side we say, please go and rate and review in iTunes, and please do so because that helps a lot. But actually on YouTube, it's the second largest search engine in the world. So if you wouldn't mind, just take a couple of minutes, help Moritz and I out just by going to find Perry Kaufman's episode from last week and like that. And of course, when you're there, we would be ever so grateful if you could uh, subscribe to the channel because that helps as well in the algorithm the more subscribers you have of course uh, and even if you don't watch the youtube episode um, you never know what we come up with in in the future in terms of new stuff so do subscribe to uh, to the podcast on youtube as well now performance wise um, it's good to see that uh, ctas in general are back in the black for october up 81 basis points for the beta 50 index, but still down 60 basis points for the year. Sockgen CT index up 1.2% for October, down 22 for the year. The trend index almost back in the black for the year, but uh, by making 1.7% so far in October, down 40 basis points only now for the year. The short-term traders index a little bit the opposite. It's down this month, 36 basis points, but still up for the year 1.83%. Then we have the uh, Alternative Risk Premier Index that's down 43 basis points for the month and down 13.5% for the year. And finally, uh, Equities MSCI World up 3% for the month so far, up 3.4% for the year. And uh, 28 basis points you would have made by investing in the World Government Bond Index so far in October. Any final thoughts before we uh, wrap up, Moritz? No, no final thoughts. Uh, I enjoyed it. I think that was good. Very broad ranged, interesting questions. Um, thank you for the kind reviews. Always great to hear that. Looking forward to speaking to Mike Cavell and you, Niels, next weekend on probably the Saturday. And then in a week's time, we'll have the new episode out. Final question for you. Something I thought could be fun to add to our, so that there's something really to wait for so people don't drop off when they hear the performance we start to review. So I thought maybe we should save one really good segment to the very end of each episode going forward. And that would be, share with me a great podcast you listened to this week that you think people should listen to if you had time. I know you're not prepared for this, so I don't know if you did listen to any other podcast this week. Of course, we, we're not going to mention our own podcast episodes here, but if there were one, yeah. This, this is a good idea because I do listen to podcasts every week it's it's the thing that i since many years i probably since 2014 it's the one thing that i do when i am in a car alone like I, I very rarely listen to the radio you know i plug my phone in and uh, i listen to interesting podcasts um the one i listened to this week and there have probably been a couple but the one i remember is with um uh joel greenblatt from gotham capital management on uh uh, masters in business with which is barry's show and you know it's it's been about you know value investing and you know picking companies because of you know their cash flows etc all very different to what it is that we're doing no trend following none of that stuff really value investing and as you know value is in a kind of like a winter episode uh, 
itself, uh, especially compared to growth. But, you know, I always find it interesting to listen to to Joel Greenblatt because I think he's he's got an amazing career uh, and he continues to do good things. So um, I recommend that. And I would need to really think really hard about the other episodes I listen to. Yeah, no, no, one is fine, actually. And maybe it's even better we only give one each because then it's doable for people to go and listen to them and yes. so on and so forth, right? So my pick for this week from the Grant Williams podcast, and it's from his series called The End Game. And uh, the latest one is with a uh, Swiss gentleman called Felix Sulauf. And uh, that is just a fascinating conversation. Felix is a, a very experienced macro investor is probably a good way to describe it. And he sets out some views on what he thinks is going to happen going forward, which I frankly fully agree with pretty much everything he said about that. Um, so that will give you a sneak peek into what I'm expecting to come and why I think trend following will be a really good place to be going forward. But to me, that was a fascinating conversation. And I'm going to sneak in and cheat a little bit even on the first try here and say, and by the way, if you're done with that, stay on the podcast and listen to Dr. Mark Farber, another Swiss guy that they did uh, last week. That's another fascinating conversation. So sorry to ruin my own rules pretty much from the get-go. But anyways, there are two recommendations. As you can tell, we're pretty much at the end of it. So we, uh, before we lose you know, more of our marbles, tune in next week. With Michael Cobell, send questions in advance, info at toptradersonplug.com. And please, please, please go to YouTube, find toptradersonplug.com, like the one with Perry Kaufman. You can like as many as you want, but especially Perry Kaufman. Subscribe to the channel and let's see if we can't get that YouTube algorithm to really love the podcast. Thank you so much from Mortz and me. Thanks for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, stay healthy and be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.